Thanks for tuning in to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that you're blessed and encouraged to walk out the gospel as you listen to this message. Like Josh yesterday, he was telling me (laughs) when we drove down here, I was ahead of him and he was pulling the trailer and I must have just gotten lost in some tape I was listening to. I used to listen to Tony Campolo. You could get so lost with that guy. And I don't know if you know that guy's voice, but yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, Anyway, I, I must have been listening to him or something, but he told me yesterday he got so mad at me because I completely lost him on the drive down here, and he got jackknifed somewhere. And He's like, that was the only time in our relationship that I've ever gotten really mad at you. That was great. Yeah. I mean, that's saying something. We've been friends for a long time. Every table is an altar. Let me tell you what makes me upset. <laughs> Let me tell you the things that really bother me about Josh. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. No, okay. No, uh, I'm just being funny. No, okay, okay. I gotta be serious here. <laughs> but I never thought that we would ever arrive at a place where. You know, the one thing that was just so beautiful about Josh and my relationship when we were in college is, I mean, literally, and I know it sounds hilarious because you think about college and everything that you could get involved with, but we would literally sit up at night and we would dream and talk about Jesus and talk about life and talk about what we're going to do and talk about this thing that we didn't even know about, like worship following Jesus. I mean, there really wasn't anything like that, guys. Like, it, it, when we were going to college, it was like you were really radical if you did an extra refrain at the end of, Lord, I lift your name on high. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was like, woo, we are off. We are in spontaneous worship now. <laughs> you know? But anyway... So we've grown. Every table is an altar. That's what Jesus does. He just opens our eyes, doesn't he? And every breath is a gift from you. Every moment is a treasure. And every day is a kiss from you. So let our life and let our hearts come be away, be away. Let our hearts and let our hearts be away, be away. Let our hearts and let our hearts be away, be away. Let our hearts and let our hearts be away. 
break the bread, break the bread, pour the wine, and let our hearts come alive in your presence, in your presence, and let our fear fall away, and let our faith rise today in your presence, in your
And let our fear fall away And let our faith rise today In your presence In your presence Break the bread, break the bread Pour the wine And let our hearts come alive In your presence In your presence And let our fear fall away And let our faith rise today In your presence, in your presence, Jesus. Mm. Amen. The, the, the practice of the presence of Jesus, it's so crazy that, you know, when you finally realize as a worship songwriter that your principal job is not to write songs about Jesus, but to be a follower of Jesus. And then to write expressions out of that activity. Right? And then to try to get, if you want to change the world, if we want to transform the world, get the expression. If if all the world, if in all the world, everything we expressed on a Sunday just among Christians, we lived actively. It changed the world instantaneously. An older woman told one, you know, my wife and I years ago when we just had, you know, Samuel and Emma and Lucy was our youngest at the time. She said, if you really want to learn what it's like to be a follower of Jesus, let your youngest child take your family on a walk. You got so many kids here at Hope. You know what I mean? If you want to learn how to be a follower of Jesus, you know what I'm saying? I said to the earlier service, I'm like, heck, around here, if you don't have a young child to take you for a walk, just borrow one. You know what I mean? But what's amazing is you have all your plans of where you want to get. I think that happens to us a lot in worship is if you let a little child lead you, um, you'll get interrupted a lot. And you'll go this way and then you'll go this way and you'll be attracted this way and this way and this way. And when you start to read the Gospels, you find that Jesus is attracted to, 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 to what appears to be interruption. And then the more you follow Jesus, the more he reveals to you the invitation in the interruption. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I fly a lot, so I'm pretty high up and I think as high as you can be in Delta. You know what I mean? And you still get interrupted and then you try to bring your badge to get out of the interruption. But nothing's going to save you from that interruption if God has an invitation for you that day. You know, and you can say all you want. And after a while, you know, God had to, you know, sort of deal with my attitude and my arrogance and my pride and my, you know, hey, I'm a diamond. It doesn't matter to Jesus whether you're a diamond. (laughs) If he wants your life to be invited into something new today, you're going to get interrupted. 
And uh, I can't tell you how many times I found myself in this state of frustration with the interruption only to be invited into just the person either I was supposed to be sitting next to or I was the person that that person was supposed to be sitting next to. And all of a sudden I'm invited into this new space and the kingdom comes alive in that moment. Why? Because I was, well, because my, my interruption just got transformed into a divine and invitation. And, uh, and, and what happens is after a while, you start actually looking for interruption in your life because you realize, oh man, this is most likely an invitation to something new. And so being a follower of Jesus is so much about that kind of activity. And when you even, you know, some of us, we have a difficult time, me being a more poetic type, I, imagination isn't so hard for me. But what I say to all my friends that have a difficult time with that, I just say, just take the Gospels, if you have a difficult time finding Jesus in your daily life, take the Gospels, like that Gospel we were just singing from, right? That, you know, break the bread, pour the wine, that Jesus is a stranger to the road to Emmaus fellows, right? He's a, this, this Jesus is a stranger until the bread is broken, right? And then boom. And, and, and this is the thing, Jesus often comes to us and when God comes to us, often he comes in a new way, and that new way feels strange to us. And we can actually miss Jesus, right? Because it seems strange. And this is the whole gift of inviting the stranger in, right? Um, and, 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 and realizing, whoa, that, that, that thing that seems strange to us is actually, that was the Lord, right? And uh, so I started thinking about that with... Um, like I do a lot, and, and, and I was thinking about, like, a lot of times, just about the time in the Gospels that you, f- you think that God, you can, you can get God to be up here, right? That God's up here, and if we could just break through the ceiling and rip the roof open, we could get to God, you know? And this is what a lot, you know what I mean? This is kind of early, immature, us as a church learning how to worship, right? It's like, let's just rip it open, God, you know, and uh, and so in the Bible, often, you know, you'll find that. Man, just about the time you think God's up here, Jesus is down here. Or just about the time you think that Jesus is always in the light, right? He's never in the darkness. Nope, never in the darkness. It's just the light. Always the light, you know what I mean? That's, that's kind of the problem with the Enlightenment is that we, we, we started to think that, that, that Christianity was subject to these ideas of the Enlightenment, that, that or the light is the good and the dark is the bad, and you know, we live this dualistic life. But in the scriptures, we actually find that most often when God speaks to humanity, it's in darkness. Uh, that's frustrating. So anyway... <laughs> That's why I like that song earlier when she's talking about light and she talks about eternal light. That's a very good distinction. Um, and so, um, um, because I want to follow Jesus. I, want, I, I, I wrote this song called uh, One Step Away years ago. Um, you know, I was told when I was young that one day soon we'll, you know, be together. And uh, uh, it's the darndest thing when you can't remember the songs you write. Yeah. Um, uh, a distant sound, the second verse, a distant sound is hard to hear, even a sound as loud as thunder. 
a distant uh, voice, a distant heart is full of fear, a distant soul has lost its wonder. Sometimes it's hard to hear your voice, my God, but is the reason that you're whispering because you're one step away. And I remember first time I realized that I had vision, but I was actually blind was when I went and was with a blind Jesuit retreat director who was actually blind, but he could see better than me. And I realized that I was actually blind and he could see. And that was a frustrating. And I remember writing this bridge for that song, One Step Away. I'm going to put it on record in a couple of, in the next year or so that it, I say, are there some things only the blind can see? God, in your great mercy, have you blinded me? I want to learn to trust you. I want to step into the night until the darkness is as light. I want to follow you like that, Jesus. Because if I learn to follow you and trust you, I can be in darkness, I can be in light, and it really doesn't matter because I'm, I'm letting you lead. Anyway, so I was thinking about that. This, is, this could be like a Bob Dylan song where you have like 35 verses. You know what I mean? And by the end of it, you're just, oh, is there another verse? <laughs> you know, it's like a, uh, but I just kept it to like three simple ones that just. If I was the rich man, would I hold on to it? Or hold back nothing and let you change my world? Money, power, and position, when it comes down to it, it ain't worth a thing if I can't have you. So lower me down, oh Jesus, and lower me down, oh I wanna be with you, and lower me down, oh Jesus, and lower me down, oh I wanna be with you. Sing this with me. I wanna be. Lower me down, lower me down 
when I reach for the sky and you cannot get to it. When you try and you try and don't know what to do. When you feel paralyzed and just can't get moving. Cause the weight of the world has got its hold on you. These are troubling times And people are hurting We are crowded with lies And counterfeit truth But the faithful will rise To carry the burden And we will rip off this rooftop To get to you is return return oh my soul to your rest to your home return return oh my soul never far away never wrong your own return Will you sing that with me? Return, return 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 Oh my soul To your end To your own Return Return Never far 
about this. And when I'm lost, you are the finder for every need. You're the still believe in me and when I run you always wait for me sing that with me return return oh my Return, return, oh my soul, to your rest, to your home. They're filled uh, with internal witness. And the beauty of the story of uh, Jesus and the spirit of the Father and the Son living with us, you know, within us, it's like, 
we're running and we're running and we're running and we're running, but we keep hearing this inner voice calling us back to the place where we're running from this life, from this existence, maybe even sometimes with this feeling of unworthiness, and Jesus has made residency within us, right? You transform me through the darkness, the chaos and the pain. You transform me through the wilderness when I can't find my way. Running from the very part of me that keeps asking me to stay and welcomes me home to where I belong. Witness. Turn in your Bibles to John 1. And I want to just talk about that for a second here. This morning, just thinking about being here, you know, Josh was not just my roommate. He said he was in my wedding. Josh was the best man in my wedding. And I don't hold anything against him for him not making me his best man in his wedding. <laughs> I didn't want to mention I would have been a great best man, but you know. No, but every time we get together, uh, there's something wonderful that happens for both me and Rachel. There's something wonderful that happens for me, even just a few hours of conversation on the phone. There's a beauty to the power of friendship. And this morning, I want to I speak to that. David White said it best, and I wanted to start with this this morning, in particular within the context of my relationship with Josh and obviously my relationship with Rachel. Rachel, can you stand so everybody can see you? This is Rachel, my wife. In the course... Listen to this. This is David White, the great poet. In the course of the years, a close friendship will always reveal the shadow in the other as much as ourselves. To remain friends, we must know the other and their difficulties, even their sins, I know all Josh's sins, so you can just come up afterwards and ask me. <laughs> and encourage the best in them. You hear this? Not through critique, but through addressing the better part of them. The leading creative edge of their incarnation, thus subtly discouraging what makes them smaller and less generous and less of themselves. Through the eyes of a real friendship, an individual is larger than their everyday actions. Do you hear that? And through the eyes of another, we receive a greater sense of our own personhood. One we can aspire to, the one in whom we have most faith. Friendship is a moving frontier of understanding, not only of the self and, and, and the other, but also of a possible and as yet unlived future. Friendship 
listen to this, transcends disappearance. An enduring friendship goes on after death. The exchange only transmuted by absence, the relationship advancing and maturing in a silent, internal, conversational way even after one half of the bond is passed. But no matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend or sustaining a long, close relationship with another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the other nor the self. The ultimate touchstone is witness. The privilege of having been seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another, to have walked with them and to have believed in them and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. Friendship. I remember years ago, I was thinking about this. I was watching Mother Teresa give a speech. In the midst of this speech, she gave a talk on children yet in a mother's womb. And I perked up because she was such a small woman and she spoke with such authority. There was no arguing with Mother Teresa, really, because of the life she lived. So she's in front of all the major leaders of the world receiving an award, and in the midst of this award, she said, the greatest thing that I have ever done in all the years of our ministry, the greatest thing we've ever done, the thing that we're most proud of aren't the millions of mouths we've fed or cared for, but the 3,000 babies that we've adopted so they would not be aborted. Because we believed from a very early point, she said, how could we believe that a baby is not powerful and worthwhile and has value while yet in a mother's womb when, when, when Jesus' presence in the womb ministered to John the Baptist while yet in the womb enough that John leapt inside and the, and the women laughed. I remember I, I wrote, I decided I, I needed to write this idea of friendship and witness that Jesus, I wanted to write a, a poetic song and ended up being a letter from Jesus to John the Baptist. And I remember taking those words and saying, do you remember when, dear John, do you remember when our mothers met? Mama told me that they laughed. Was that a sign for us or a sign for them when Unborn babies testify. Carried, carried between earth and sky, sons of eternity and time. John, we were born. Born of spirit, born of water, born of blood. We were born, John. Child of freedom. Child of promise, child of God. Remember in the Gospels, we have this, we see that 
that it was really 400 years of silence that was broken when Jesus, when the sky was open and Jesus heard the voice of his father say, you are my beloved son. The mouth of John's father was opened, remember? He was muted until he believed Elizabeth and believed the name that we were to declare over this child. And his mouth was open the moment he believed. I remember I wrote that Jesus saying to dear John in the letter, dear John, do you remember do you remember what our fathers spoke? Silence broke down on our knees. There was power in their prayers. Remember what they said? We're the children of their dreams. Words of acceptance split the sky. Visions of heaven filled our eyes, and we were born, John. Born of spirit, born of water, born of blood. Born, child of freedom, child of promise child of God. Do you remember how it made us feel, John, to be traded for a foolish lie? I was the song that danced. You were the song that healed, but neither song could satisfy. Wisdom was fighting for her life. And we were the children of our time, John. And they killed us but we were born, born of spirit, born of water, born of blood, born a child of freedom, child of promise, a child of God, the power of witness in friendship. I remember thinking about that, that there were, there were literally two places where Jesus was carried be, between earth and sky. Carried between earth and sky in that tension, right? In the mother's womb. Carried between earth and sky on the cross. And some people say, some people say that the cross is the place where Jesus died. But the first witnesses, those amazing women, preachers, evangelists, the first evangelists of the world, they witnessed to something different. The cross evidently wasn't a place to come and die. The cross was a place to be born. N.T. Wright actually picked up on this, that when Jesus came into the world, came in through the mother's womb, and he tore open an, a, a hole in the cosmos, and he brought eternity back into time. And when he went on that cross and showed us that there was something beyond death that was called resurrection, he tore back open a window, a doorway in the cosmos and brought time back into eternity. And those first witnesses, right? It wasn't proof, it was witness. It wasn't, let me give you my argument, it was witness. These women witnessed it and they weren't giving up. Jesus came back in the flesh to Thomas and said, go ahead, Thomas. He didn't come back with scars. He came back with open wounds. Go ahead and touch him again, Thomas. Thomas's faith did not increase because Jesus looked all powerful, overcoming everything. No, Thomas's faith increased because Jesus said, touch the wounds again, here they are. You feel those wounds? I'm alive and resurrected. Death has no power over me. That's the power of witness. Why did those men, 
Why did those men live their lives out for Jesus? Was it because there were some theological people that got around and made great arguments for Jesus' existence? No, it was because Jesus came and walked among them in presence and said, come and touch my wounds. It's not an idea that Jesus is with us. God is with us. That's power. And those beautiful witnesses who are amazing women evangelized to the world, the witness and testimony of resurrection power. Jesus walking out of the tomb like a baby coming out of a womb becomes the testimony of life to us. St. Francis actually witnessed it. We all know that famous prayer. It's in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is unbelievably, really, it's in dying that we are born. It's in giving that we receive. Think about that. It's in giving that we receive. It's in pardoning that we are pardoned. It's in dying that we're born. Open your Bibles to John 1. John 1, we're going to just start the whole context here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, this all is just unbelievable to me, these, this wording. All things that were made through him and without him, all things that were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Cheapers. <laughs> and in him, was, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, I love that, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Hmm. I love that idea that the true light illuminates. The true light, it illuminates, it bears witness to life and reality. And I think a lot of times we think that, that we were called to be the light of the world in a way that everybody looks at us and then somehow we give glory to God. But we were called to be the light of the world in the way that Jesus said and showed us and bore witness to being light. That the lesser your light, the more people can look at you. The greater your light, right? You illuminate and provide energy for the world around you. 
It's like Eberhard Arnold used to preach all the time back in the, in the early part of the 1900s to young people, to youth. He would say, do not spare your candle, but let your light shine. Because he, he knew that to allow my light to shine meant the elimination of my candle, right? So don't spare it. Let it shine. I wrote a song about that years ago, you know, uh, The Thief and the Friend, and I, I said, uh, so light a candle tonight, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine for the goodness and glory of God, let it shine on the wrong, let it shine on the right, and shine especially bright for the losers, for I have given them hope and a future, and the sun lights the moon, and the moon lights the night while the earth spins around once again, and it shines on the wrong, it shines on the right, it shines on the thief and the friend. We were called to be witnesses. John was a witness. Listen to this, all of us creatives here in particular, and most of us in this world of uh, being known, of uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, we live in a world, right? Instagram, you know, that's the, the, the danger of Instagram is that it's always giving you faces and places of everywhere you're not. And, 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 and my generation and, and, and onward, you know, down, you know, if we're not careful, we need to realize that we have been programmed into menuing and switching and sliding. And instead of being witnesses to each other, we have become, we become, we become shifty. We menu. When we get tired of one face on our screen of life, we can just swipe. Swipe you off and put somebody else's picture on. Facebook, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just Facebook and Google and YouTube and Instagram. These are promises of potential, promises of, of, of potentially being known. And in many ways, the promise of potentially being known technologically may be far greater than ever before in human history, right? But ironically, more and more of us are within the same culture feeling less and less known and less and less seen, feeling less and less belonging. Anxiety and suicide continue to be on the rise, a feeling of loneliness, even levels of anguish. Because this promise of being known, I just want us to hear these words. John says he was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. And all of us that are creatives, I think we should hear this because I think we value, we even evaluate what we do based on whether we're known within this culture because we've been programmed that way. We don't even know how to value things unless they're known. We're such a commodifiable culture, everything must become a commodity. It must have a price tag on us for us to give value to it. Thomas Merton said back in the day, he said, while I'm sitting in my hermitage, I'm listening to the rain falling so generously and free in the 1950s. And he said, one day, one day, humanity will buy the rain and they'll package it and sell it to us because we don't even know how to value things that are given as gifts for free. 
But right now, I'm in the midst of it. And in in some ways, it's sort of frustrating me because it's putting out my campfire. But I'm going to rejoice in God's generosity. Jesus was in the world. Listen to that, guys. He was in the world and everything, you talk about creative, everything in all the world was made through him. And yet the world didn't even know him. Jesus was in the world. The world was made through him and the world didn't know him. I'm gonna say it again. Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. Henry Nouwen said this 30 some odd years ago, we know intuitively that everything that moves us by its delicacy, its vulnerability and pristine beauty can stand only very little public exposure. The mass media which magnify creativity and intimacy are proof of that. What is precious and sacred and hiddenness often becomes cheap and even vulgar when exposed to the public at large by the mass media. Publicity standardizes, hardens, and not infrequently suffocates what it exposes. Many great minds and spirits have lost their creative force through too early or too rapid exposure to the public. We know it, we sense it, but we easily forget it because our world persists in proclaiming the big lie that being unknown means being unloved. And Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, and yet the world didn't know him. What I loved about worship this morning is if you go back and listen to the worship, it was all proclamation from a space of witness. It wasn't praising just because we're praising. If you listen to the language, it was praising from a space of witness of testimony, of who God really is to us. The Bible's not filled with arguments for God. The Bible's filled with witness. This is what our worship, our praise should be filled with, with witness. Rowan Williams writes, he says, Abraham and Moses and St. Paul don't sit down to work out whether God exists. Isn't that interesting? Abraham and Moses and St. Paul, they don't sit down. The Bible's not filled with a bunch of guys sitting down trying to figure out ways to make everybody know that God exists. No, 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 no. Abraham and Moses and St. Paul and the list goes on and on. They're already caught up in the reality that God exists, a reality that can't be ignored or denied. Sometimes they're even dealing with the frustrations of that reality, like Merton's fire going out. The Bible's not filled with arguments for God. The Bible's filled with witness. Faith has a a lot to do with the simple fact that there are trustworthy lives to be seen. When When God wants to change the world through history, it rarely comes as an argument that we can't ignore or deny, but through a life we can't ignore or deny. 
Are you hearing that? To us, how does God change history? To us, a child is born. That's how God changes over and over and over and over and over. A life that cannot be denied. A life that cannot be denied. Why? Because there's really not an argument against against a life that makes God real. I want you to think about that yourself. There's really no argument against a life that makes God real. There's really no argument against a life that makes love real. So if you're writing notes down, just, just, write, just write this question down. Does my life make God real? How about this? Have I taken up the responsibility within my life for God's believability? Write that down. Am I a witness? And this may be a shock, but you know, long before we were ever called to be worshipers or preachers or servants or healers or evangelists or psalmists, we were commissioned, we were even asked by Jesus not just to be his friends, but to be his witnesses. Am I a witness? Within our worship community, does my life make God real? Does does our worship make God real? Does our praise make God real? Like I said this morning, the reason the praise makes God real when I'm reading the words Sometimes I, I, I sing praise songs and it doesn't make God real. I feel, I feel like I'm living, I'm, I'm just, I'm sitting and I'm completely clocked out and half the worship team's clocked out and we're just, oh yeah, praise them. <laughs> the Psalms aren't filled with ignorers and deniers. Do you understand? The Psalms, our praise is not to be filled. Our churches are not filled. The world will not be changed by ignorers or deniers praising them. I just want to push in that just a little bit further because these words are good that we're singing. But why are we singing them? Because we were called to be witnesses. The Psalms are filled with over 70% lament. Why are the Psalms believable because they come from a place of witness hear me out on this it's it's like uh what makes god believable with our lives well there's a lot that we'll get but what is what makes god believable in our worship right in our praise why are the psalms so believable why can you give a psalm book to an absolute stranger that's never gone to church and never been a christian and they'll love the psalms because the bible is not filled the psalms are not filled with praise right, in the midst of a suffering that that psalmist has not yet personally suffered. Can, can, I, hit, can I hit that again? The psalm is not filled. See, so, so, so let's say, just for example, there's, you know, we have this all the time now, but let's say just for example, 
10 children get shot down at a local high school, right? And the community's grieving. What makes God real is not that a bunch of people get together on that Sunday after the shooting and we all say, let's praise him. Let's praise him. Let's just praise him. All the people who aren't suffering are praising. So the Psalms are not filled with a people coming together, hearing a commandment to praise. That's not going to make God real. God is not going to be made real by a bunch of people who aren't experiencing suffering, the suffering, praising. What makes God real is those who aren't experiencing the suffering enter in to the suffering for a moment of those who suffer and sing the song of lament for the community. What's the praise of the psalm? Why is this psalm so powerful? Why is praise so powerful in the psalms? Because this is the essence you get from the psalmist. Praise that makes God real is one of the mothers or fathers of the children that have died getting up on a Sunday morning and in the midst of their suffering, they begin to praise. You want to make God real? When the person that's actually suffering begins to praise, God becomes instantaneously real. Right? And when we become a people who aren't afraid, right? We're not trying to ignore reality. We're trying to dive into reality, to be a part of existence, to share in the midst of suffering. What makes God real? Like the Amish family, when the... When the when, you know, remember that? And, and that kind of forgiveness where they, don't, they didn't just forgive the shooter's wife, right? They, 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 they said, we're gonna, he's gone and he's dead, so we're gonna actually, this guy killed our children, killed our community, people of our community, but as a community, we're actually not just gonna forgive and show acts of We're gonna actually take care of the family of the shooter that's not gone, that can't take care of themselves. That will be a witness of the presence of God in a community. We weren't, just, we weren't called to praise God in the midst of a suffering that we have not suffered. We were called, right? To praise him in a way we praise this morning. It comes out of our very lives. So when we make these declarations, it's not empty declarations that we don't even mean anymore. It comes from a very real place of this God that we declare is real. We're walking into a beautiful inheritance, right? I just want to just, a little story of a, may, may or may not have heard. Has anybody heard of Eddie Helisum in the room? Eddie Helisum? Good. Eddie Helisum, you know, wasn't as popular as Anne Frank because, <laughs> frankly, she wasn't sellable, really. And I mean that sincerely. I mean, all the pictures you have of Eddie Helisum, she was a non-religious Jewish girl who uh, was captured by the Nazis, brought into uh, Vesterbork, a holding camp. At 29, she died in Auschwitz. But nobody really heard her story. Uh, I was first introduced to it by the Anglicans. Uh, 
We didn't really hear it here. It's more heard in Europe because half the pictures, I mean, Eddie's got a cigarette hanging out of her mouth and it's just like, it wouldn't have worked. And, <laughs> and so, <laughs> but what happened was something remarkable. I remember I was reading this and wrote a song about it. It's called Write Every Day Down. I, I was reading in 2008, the markets were crashing, everything was going crazy, people were losing their faith, and, and I'm reading about this non-religious Jewish girl that ends up at Vesterbork and then on to Auschwitz, and, and, and she takes on the responsibility of witness. And she starts writing in her journals because she starts experiencing the presence of God for the very first time. So this non-religious Jewish girl in the midst of Vesterborg starts to experience the presence of God so real that she says, somebody's got to write all these experiences down so that people in the future will know that God lived in these times. To the finder of letters, I wrote, sailing in bottles out on the sea, I'm happy to tell you that God lived in these times. For I am a witness to the most beautiful day and the most horrible day in both have been miracles to me. Write every day down. Jesus has called us to be witnesses. I want to sing a song over you that I wrote last year about my children, and I want to sing it over your children. I want to sing it over hope. I want to sing it over all of the you know, five or 600 children that are on campus this morning over fathers, over mothers. It was funny last night, we were at Josh's house and we we're all hanging out and the girls at some point, you know, in those, you know, moments, I don't know why it happens, but the guys all end up in one corner of the house and the girls ended up at the other corner of the house. I don't know why that happens. And we all just start giggling because we were having the most amazing conversation. It was Heath and Michael and Tyler and Josh. And at one point in the conversation, we're all like, half of us tears are in our eyes and we're giving testimony of how we got saved. And everybody's going around and talking about how they got saved and we're all like just getting messed up. And I thought, this is so funny because... You know, most of the time when the guys are in one section of the house and the girls are in the other, the guys are talking about the game and the girls are like weeping at the table. You know what I mean? And this was like such a hilarious thing. All the girls were laughing hysterically in the other room and we're all over there. Oh God, tell me another story. And we're like, this is funny. We must be Christians. You know what I mean? It's amazing. <laughs> But I kept going around the room, and I was about to get to Michael. I need to find that out today. But I kept going around the room asking about salvation stories and what happened in their life and everything. And then in the midst of it, he says, so how did you get saved? And I, it was so wild that he asked me. I didn't even know he was going to ask me. You never know in a conversation how it's all going to go down. And I, but as he was telling me his salvation story, I started thinking, gosh, I, always, I know Rachel's salvation story. I know so many friends' salvation story. But my, my salvation story, what is my salvation story? When did I get saved? 
And as he's speaking, I realized that literally through adoption, through adoption, and anybody that doesn't know my story, you can just look it up online. There's several stories about Through my adoption, I was brought into an entire journey in history of salvation. The story of salvation began with adoption. So much so that my biological mother closed up the documents and prayed over me. One thing I ask of the Lord, that you'll dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life, that you'll have a hunger for, that you'll be a worshiper, that you'll have a hunger for scripture. I opened that 30 years after she had closed that adoption paper and sent me out for adoption. And every single one of those things had come to pass from her prayers, right? But salvation history for me, I remember, I I was remembering it vividly last night. It started for me, my whole life I was told I was adopted and we went to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday and any other time of the week, there was time to be in services and back then services went real long, extremely long. And I I would fall asleep on my mother's lap just in services and people would be at the altar bawling their eyes out. I mean, it was just amazing. Something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. That was, I remember these songs, right? And growing up in, in that kind of world, I would run around church telling people I was adopted. I'm adopted. (laughs) And they would be like, that is so amazing. You know what I mean? And then they'd declare something amazing, you know, to me and how I'm just so amazing because I'm adopted. (laughs) It's amazing. And I mean, mean, it never occurred to me, if you're not adopted, you're probably amazing too. You know what I mean? (laughs) But for me, I was like, (laughs) I'm... (laughs) I'm so amazing because I'm adopted. And I would just walk up to people, tell them that because I knew that what was going to ensue, they were going to just start gushing over me with amazing blessings. (laughs) And I'll never forget first grade, me and Corey. I shouldn't say his last name, I used to. But Corey and I just, they're at the bus stop. And I went up to Corey, the other first grader. I'm nervous. I want to, you know, I want to get to know him. I want him to get to know me. I said, I'm adopted. (laughs) It's the first thing I said to the kid. I'm adopted. And then he looked at me and he said, you know what that means? (laughs) That means... She's listening to another sermon from somebody else down the street. Just a little better. What if the whole time she had her ear pods in and she was just like, man. She's listening to the elevation service and I'm like, Stephen Furnick is amazing. And it just, has, oh, that's funny. Oh, Lord. Uh, so anyway so I said adopted he said he said he said you're you know what if you're bad your parents can just send you back well I grew up a good Pentecostal boy 
So by first grade, I had already been saved 11 or 12 times. You know what I mean? <laughs> I already knew I was bad. I'd done all sorts of bad stuff. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking, oh, man, what if my dad finds out? And I remember that night I called to my dad, I called to him, and we had this literally tri-level house. He had to go up three flights of stairs, and my bedroom's on the top, and he was down with my mom downstairs, and I kept calling him up to me, but I was, I was afraid. I was afraid of the answer. I wanted to tell him what I was afraid of, but I was afraid to tell him what I was afraid of because I was afraid he'd answer and that Corey was speaking the truth. And I remember my dad came up the third time after I called him so many times and he, I said, oh, nothing. I kept saying, oh, nothing. He said, oh, no, no, it's something. And I'm gonna sit at the end of this bed until you tell me, because I'm not going all the way back down those stairs again. <laughs> so he said, said, and you're gonna tell me tonight, what's going on, Jason? Well, I couldn't even hardly get the words out before I'm like weeping because I'm such a bad, I'm bad. You have all sorts of reasons you could send me back, my dad. I'll never forget. He said, he took me after I had cried for a while and he held me and he pushed me out like this and he said, look me in my eyes. This is, this is when salvation started for Jason. This was my salvation day. He said, look me in my eyes. Do you know what it means when I adopted you? No. He said, it means this. I had to sign a document that says I can never disinherit you and I can never disown you, ever. I didn't even know what disinherit or disown meant. <laughs> but when I was looking in his eyes, I believed him. that moment, I know it was that moment, I was saved. And my dad, his life of witness is so strong. My son Samuel is, is 19 years old and uh, we went on a silent retreat this year and on the way out of the silent retreat, he said something to me. He said, you know what, Dad? I'll always believe in Jesus. <laughs> I said, why is that? I thought maybe something was said on the, on the retreat or he said a prayer or something like that. He said, I said, why will you always believe in Jesus? He said, I'll never not have faith in Jesus. I said, wow, why? He said, well, and they just started naming people. Well, because grandpa, grandpa's my dad, papa, grandma, friends. It wasn't arguments. It wasn't that we proved God to him. His salvation is connected the same way my salvation is connected. I believe in a father who will never disinherit me and never disown me. Why? 
Because I looked in a father's eyes that were believable that said, I'll never disinherit you and I'll never disown you. And he never did. Because the power of witness. My father's 75 years old. What'd they do for fun? He builds Habitat for Humanity houses and they planted a church five years ago. And the church is thriving. I'm gonna go preach there in June with friends just for fun. My father's always been a preacher, right? And his preaching was with his life. His testimony was his witness. So I've been thinking about our children. You know, we live in a time of like, you know, it's really important that we learn that Christian witness, actually, I mean the Jesus-following kind, is the hope of the world. It's not our arguments or our arguments with each other, our arguments within the community. My dad and I, we don't agree on all sorts of things, but I will always follow Jesus for all of my days because of the witness of my father and my mother, period. It's not about arguments, it's about lives lived. So I ask you, not just as our worship, but Ask ourselves, is my life a witness of Jesus? That's the hope. And uh, so I wrote this song about our kids and praying. Maybe you, you mothers will, and fathers will get this, you know. Uh, you know, you're sending your kids off to college and you're crying all the time and... It just says this. I've been praying. I've been waiting. I've been searching for a sign. I've been watching. I've been listening. Hope is key.
to the future We gotta leave the past behind And let wisdom be our sister And belong and be our guide And look at the sunrise And look at the birds fly you all stand with me this morning? How many have been blessed? Yeah. Could we just take a minute and just lift up our hands and just thank the Lord for this word this morning? Could we just thank him out loud together? Just thank the Lord. We just thank you, Father. Your kind heart is in this room. Your love is in this room. I just thank you for your deep father love for every person in this place. Hmm. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, I want to invite some of our ministry team to come forward this morning. If you would just come real quick. And uh, I'm not going to give a specific response to all of this, but I just believe that there are people here today that, that maybe you just need Jesus today. Maybe you've never known him. Maybe you know him and you're just in a place in life where you just feel alone. Maybe you're in a place in life where you just feel like you're on the outside looking in. And today the Father's here and he wants to touch your heart. Amen. He wants to pull you close. Um, so whatever the case may be, we're going to dismiss in a moment, but this team is here and we want to just pray and love on you in any way. Um, I believe the Lord wants to touch people today continually in the next few minutes. Um, if you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you, he loves you and he's here and you're here for a reason today. I want to make this mention real quick that uh, Jason has some CDs out at our guest service desk out in the foyer. If you're interested in picking up a few of those, they're for purchase. And also, we'd love to bless him with a really amazing offering. Amen. Um, Jason travels the world, and um, we were talking just yesterday about just his desire. He gets invited to countries all over the world that sometimes they don't even have the finances for him to come. And uh, I would just love to bless him financially today in a significant way to help the ministry that he, he releases go all over the world. Amen? Yeah. So I want to encourage you, the ushers will be at the door to take up our offering this morning. We love you so much. And I encourage you to come for prayer. Maybe you just want to find a place to kneel and just to be with the Lord. God bless you. We love you. Hug somebody before you go today.